you know, these, uh, these moments right here, like right now, um, most weeks, I get to walk up here on stage after just get done singing. It's, it's like one of my most favorite times every single week. I don't know if it is for you, but it's just one of my favorite times. Uh, I needed that this morning. Amen? Amen. It's good to sing what is true. Because there's a lot of other things that the world and the devil wants to tell us are true. But they're not. They're not. What we just sang is true. God is with us. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you for being the God who is with us. Um, who's with his people, but who comes to save people that are not his people and make them his people. And uh, Lord, we just thank you for the mercy and grace that we find in Christ Jesus. I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would continue to inhabit the praises of your people, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts where you would bring healing, wholeness, bring freedom, joy, real peace, peace that passes all understanding, and fill our hearts with hope. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Men, you can have a seat. As Mark mentioned in the intro, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 today. I believe in the Bible reading plan. Uh, this is a, maybe a bit of an audible. I, we were supposed to be finishing up Judges chapter 8, but with the way things are going to go over the next couple of weeks and with the Christmas Eve service and some stuff that we want to do there uh, on Christmas Eve here, um, I wanted to jump ahead and get into Matthew a little bit. This week we'll be in Matthew 1, and Lord willing, next week we will be in Matthew chapter 2, which were the, the next two chapters in the Bible reading plan that we've been doing. So find Matthew, first book of the New Testament. <coughs> uh, it is an interesting chapter to just read. Uh, it might be one you might be tempted to skip over because the first part of it is a genealogy, but we are going to read it all, okay? So follow along with me. Uh, if you don't know the names, that's okay. I probably don't either, but we'll just say them fast and with confidence and it'll be all right. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's, it's literally the genesis, the genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ab. 
Abayid. And Abayid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Would you open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from it? And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. How many of you guys have ever been given an awkward introduction? Anybody? Uh, I think I might have shared this, shared this story before. One of the most awkward introductions um, I ever got was that uh, one time there was a basketball tournament uh, that I was playing in, I was on, it was a three-on-three tournament, but it was hosted by a ministry, and at, uh, like, the intermission of, of all the games before we got into the second half of the day playing basketball, um, I was supposed to give a little gospel presentation and, uh, and share the good news. And so there's one last game before I'm supposed to get up and, and share, share the gospel, and uh, right um, during that game, so everybody's gathered around because this is the last one before the intermission, and right before, at the end of this game, um, the one guy uh, that was playing and the referee really got into it. And um, the referee actually called this guy a name. And then this guy wasn't having it. And he gets up and he just goes after him. And people had to like jump in and like, um, and, like separate him. And it was, it, was pretty, it was pretty tense. And then literally... Like, once they got it all settled down, the next play, somebody scores and the game was over. And then right from there, the guy that's running the tournament goes, okay, I want everybody to have a seat on the floor, and the tension is still very, very high. Like, you could cut it with a knife, and the guy just goes, okay, Eric has something he's going to share with us, and he walks off. And I was like, okay, well, uh, (laughs) it's an awkward introduction. Remember another time, this one was more on me, I awkwardly introduced myself, um, back when I was like 15, 16 years old, I think I might have just turned 16, me and a bunch of my friends were out in Las Vegas for a basketball tournament, um, and uh, we were in the airport, and our coach had just said, hey, there's a lot of famous people coming and going from Las Vegas, uh, 
keep your eyes open for famous people. And now listen, do not judge me, okay? Do not judge me. But at the time, I, I really liked uh, WWF wrestling. Don't judge me, okay? It's a safe place. Um, and there's a wrestler, I don't know if you guys know him, um, Bill Goldberg, okay? Anybody, nobody wants to admit it, but I know some of you watch. Um, but there's this guy named Bill Goldberg. He was like my favorite wrestler. He had these big, like, he, I mean, he was just jacked had these big traps like coming out of his shoulder and his special like finishing move would be the spear. He would just go and just tackle a guy. He used to, anyway, he was my boy. And uh, so we're sitting there in the airport and I, in like in the airport, um, uh, like con- concessions, the food court area, um, I see Goldberg and I'm like, dude, it's Goldberg. So I just go over to him. And again, I was 15, 16 year old, years old. I wasn't the well-rounded person that you see before you today. Um, <laughs> Maybe, and I just go over to him, and for whatever reason, I just walk up to him as if I, and I put my hand on his shoulder. Just, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no warning. And I go, Goldberg. And he just goes, and I go, can I have your autograph? And he goes, wait till I'm done eating. And I was like, okay. And I took a couple steps back, and then I just stood there and I watched him finish eating. And then I, I got his autograph. I don't know what happened to it. But, but he didn't spear me. He didn't tackle me. So that was, a, that was a plus. Anyway, what's the point? Awkward introductions. Uh, Matthew, it seems, at the beginning of his gospel, gives us an awkward introduction. However, it is anything but that. Matthew, along with the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all writing to introduce us to Jesus. Uh, They describe various things about his life. However, they each kind of have a focus. Um, Mark introduces Jesus primarily as servant. Luke introduces Jesus primarily as a man or human. John introduces Jesus as God, as divinity. And Matthew introduces Jesus as king. And he does it in what seems to our Western minds um, in kind of this, this awkward fashion by just starting off the book with a genealogy. But it's anything but awkward, and in fact, it's absolutely beautiful and, and breathtaking, some of the, the details and the nuance to what Matthew is doing here. And I'm going to try to show that to you today. But Matthew's whole point in all of this is he is... I don't want to say screaming, because that might be a little bit like, I don't know, make us want to draw back, but he is just declaring with all his might this message, that Jesus is the king, and that he is the king that we have all been waiting for. He is the king that we have all been waiting for. He's going to show us that he's not just the king, but he's a certain type of king, and the certain type of king that he is is exactly the type of king that we need. Exactly the type of king that we have always needed. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning is those three things. We're going to kind of come in and out of all of them, try to do my best uh, to show you what Matthew's doing here because it's really, it's pretty cool. But again, what we want to look at is that Jesus is the king, and not only is he a king, but he's a certain type of king, and that certain type of king that he is is precisely the type of king that we need. First of all, um, let me show you that Jesus is the king. And here's the deal. Get your Bibles open 
And I want, you, I want to show you some specific things in the text. We're also going to be flipping back to the Old Testament. Usually I have stuff up on the screen. I, I'm not going to have stuff up on the screen today as much. I want you to actually turn with me back uh, in, in your Bible and look at some of these obscure passages to see uh, what Matthew is doing. But it's really, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, but we got we to gotta do some work. So Jesus is the king. First of all, notice in this genealogy that Matthew gives us some clues. The genealogy is bookended with two names specifically. In verse 1, you have the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then these two names, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Once he gets through the genealogy, the beginning of verse 17, he bookends it with those two names again. So all the generations from Abraham to David. Or 14 generations. So he wants us to, or, or, to uh, or he's trying to highlight for us these two names, Abraham and David. He also then lists them in the genealogy. Um, the reason for this is, is, there's probably a lot to it. The primary thing is, is that throughout the history of redemption, God has primarily been dealing with his people through what theologians call covenants that he would make. And not just theologians, but the Bible calls them that. Is that he would come to people and he would make covenants with them. Now, very quickly, um, I need you to zoom out here. So back in, in October, we did an E2 course on how to study your Bible. One of the things that the people that took the, that, those classes that we talked about was how when you read the Bible, you constantly have to move back and forth between the narrow lens and the wide-angle lens. So the narrow lens is getting right down and focusing on little details in the text, but you also at times need to zoom out and you need to see the whole thing. So right now I can look at specific individual faces. I also can kind of zoom out and see all of you. In the same way, in the text here, I need you to zoom out with me and go really big picture. From the beginning of creation, kind of some of the covenants in the ways that God is dealing with humanity are the Adamic covenant, which was his covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden, the Noahic covenant, which was his covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, which he lists here, the Mosaic covenant, which happened at Sinai when he gives the law to Moses, and the Davidic covenant. Okay, and so two of them are listed here, Abraham and David, and I think he's trying to draw our attention to the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, just very quickly, you guys remember last year we, we looked a little bit at uh, the life of Abraham in the Bible reading plan. Here's the, the big idea with, with the Abrahamic covenant, is that God was going to step down into the curse that sin had brought upon the earth, okay, and he was going to, out of his own free will, out of his own grace, out of his own mercy, he was going to bless humanity. And he started to bless us by with, with this one barren couple, Abraham and Sarah, who were unable to have kids. And he comes to them in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. There's kind of, in a nutshell, what the Abrahamic covenant was, that God was going to come, he was going to bless them, so that they and their descendants could be a blessing to the people around them. Now, you get more um, kind of details on the Abrahamic covenant as you read about Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, in verse 6, God is he's kind of just adding to, it's not a new covenant, but he's adding to the, the covenant that he'd already established with Abraham back in chapter 12. And one of the things he, he says to him is he says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Listen, and kings shall come from you. So before Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't even have any kids. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to miraculously give you a child, okay? And not only are you going to have one child, but nations are going to come from you. And now kings 
are going to come from you, okay? And again, all this is God's way of working within the curse that sin had brought to bring about blessing because he is a good, gracious God. And so there's this whisper very early on in the story that a king is going to come. You fast forward then, and this is what Matthew's doing here and trying to draw our attention to um, in this genealogy. From Abraham, they're not a nation, they're a family that can't even have kids. Eventually they have kids, and it's Isaac, and you can, I'm not going to read them all again, Jacob. But from Abraham to David, where he brings up David in verse 6 in the genealogy, you have the formation of a nation, and then David is a king. And so you went from not even having a family, really, to now having families and a nation, and now this nation has a king. For those of you that call Mercy Hill home and have been in the Bible reading plan back in the book of Judges, which is where we've been before this morning, you know that the refrain throughout the book of Judges was that in that time, everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. So there was no king. But now, in David, God brings about this king. And there was a Davidic covenant that God made with David, okay? And again, I'm just giving you really broad strokes here. The Davidic covenant, the heart of it, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. He says, when your days are fulfilled, he's saying this through a prophet Nathan to David. He says, when your days are are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, and here's the key word, forever. The throne of his kingdom is going to be forever. So with Abram, he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world later on. He says, kings are going to come from you. This is part of the blessing. Several, a thousand years later then, here comes David. Now, God, again, not, it, they're not, all the covenants, they're not just random separate things. God is always adding to the way that he's dealing with humanity in redemption. And he says to David, another um, seed or offspring is going to come from you, and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. And so Matthew wants us to pick up on this, that Jesus is a descendant of the king. In verse 6, He also says, if you notice this little detail in the genealogy, Jesse, the father of David, he doesn't just say David, of David, the king. Now there's more grammatical kind of literary details, again, that makes me say that Matthew is, is like screaming this for us, that Jesus is the king that we've been looking for. Look at verse 17. What's up with the, him pointing out these different generations here, and specifically that there's 14 generations. Look at verse 17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David, so the establishment of the nation, and then David kind of being like the crown jewel of the establishment of the nation and this kingship, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation into Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You're like, why is Matthew doing this? Now, um, there's some debate on this, but almost certainly, almost all commentators tend to agree that probably what is happening here is this is a, this is a Jewish way of Matthew uh, communicating something that's called gematria. We're going to go down a rabbit hole real quick for just a second. Okay, hang with me. Is gematria is this um, kind of system where you assign uh, numerical values to Hebrew letters, okay? 
And here's the deal, is that Matthew points out 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to the Christ, because the Hebrew letters that form David's name in Hebrew add up to 14. You following me? So again, you're like, well, is this kind of weird? Now, let me give a little aside. I got to just step into a sidecar here for a second and explain this. There are some people out there that get really weird really quick with numbers in the Bible, okay? This is not giving us a license to do that, to get weird quick. The Bible's very explicit where it wants us to understand it. Matthew is highlighting here, like, like again, verse 17 is in the Bible because Matthew's being very intentional in trying to communicate to us what it is he wants us to see. But here's Matthew's point, is that he's saying that God is the God over all of history, okay? And these 14 generations, they're not by mistake. It's not by mistake that David's name with Gematria adds up to the number 14. But again, it's his Jewish way of writing and saying, Jesus is the king. Do you see? Jesus is the king. And he's trying to get us to understand this as much as he, as he possibly knows how. But not only is he a king, but there's also great subtlety here in what he's trying to communicate to us, that Jesus is a different type of king. So in this genealogy, because to, to just say Jesus is a king, like, okay, cool, but there's actually quite a few kings listed. In fact, from verse 6, from David, the first king listed in the genealogy, at least, all the way through uh, Jeconiah, in verse 11, who's the king at kind of the time that the people of Israel get taken off to Babylon, those are all kings. Okay, so what's the big deal about a king? Well, they weren't the right type of king. These kings were a mixed bag. Even David, who is kind of like thought of as like the greatest of Israel's kings, notice how Matthew goes out of his way, again, to bring in this, this detail that should jump out to us if we're reading the genealogy seriously and not just skimming over it. Notice what he says, verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Now listen to what he says. The father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now who was that? Do you know who that was? That was Bathsheba. But why doesn't he just say Bathsheba? Or why doesn't he just say David's wife? Because David took her as his wife later on. Because, if you remember the story, even David, who's kind of like the, you know, the highlight of Israel's natural history, where he becomes king, it's like this, this high point for them. David commits adultery with her and has Uriah, her husband, murdered. Pretty dark, right? It's not like he just stole a cookie from the cookie jar. Like, that, that's a really big deal. And so Matthew goes out of his way here by saying it in this way, that David was the father of Solomon not David's wife, or not Bathsheba, but Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, is he's trying to point out that even with all these kings that are listed, and even with David, who was kind of thought of as, as the greatest king that Israel ever had, is there was, need, there was need for a different type of deliverer. There was need for a different type of king. And you're like, man, really? Because, man, David, he's the man. He took down Goliath. He got the five smooth stones from the brook and he slung them around and, you know, Goliath was talking trash and David wasn't afraid and, you know, he talked back to him and said, I'm going to take you down and chop off your head and boom, he does it, takes him, takes him down. Matthew's saying, yeah, but that wasn't enough because we have a greater enemy. 
an enemy who is more pervasive, more powerful, darker, and harder to get rid of than Goliath or the Philistines or the Midianites, as we've been reading about in the book of Judges, or the Amalekites, or any of the other ites that are out there. The enemy that we need delivered from is sin. And that's exactly the point that Matthew is trying to make here in highlighting Israel's dark history. Again, jumping ahead, just showing you different places where this is undoubtedly Matthew's point. Is what does he say in the birth narrative in verses 18 through 25? Is that Jesus shows up on the scene, yes, legally adopted by Joseph, who's a descendant of David, and so he has legal rights to the throne, but he's born of a virgin. Not of the same broken, sinful lineage as all those other kings, including David. And when he shows up, he's very specific in what they want his name to be. Verse 21, you shall bear a son, he says to Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus for, so here's why, he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God is salvation. That's what it means. And so do you see how Matthew here <coughs> is saying, yes, Jesus is the one that was promised long beforehand. And he's the real king. But we didn't just need another king. We needed a different type of king. And if we could just pause here for a second and just make some application to our own lives. Folks, is this not a message that we need to hear? is that what we think is the problem is never actually the problem. <laughs> Throughout Israel's history, from, from Abraham to David, it was just, if, if we could just be fruitful and multiply and have a big family and actually become a nation, that would be great. That happens. Then they become really great and they go into Egypt and they become so great that Pharaoh is scared of them, so he puts them into slavery. And so now they're great in number, but they don't have a land to call their own. They don't have freedom. Man, if we could just have freedom, if we could just have a land of our own. And so God brings them out of Egypt. And he gives them a land, wants to give them a land of their own, a land flowing with milk and honey. But they break the covenant. They don't really go in. Again, that's what we've been reading about in the book of Judges. But they kind of sort of, you know, get this land that they were supposed to have. And then they say, you know, in the beginning of the book of, of First and Second of, of First Samuel, it's man. Well, we have our land now. We're, we're a people. We have our own land. But man, what we need is a king. And so they find for themselves Saul, this first king, who's who's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. It, the idea is that like he would have been on the cover of GQ, GQ magazine. He was like a model, and everybody's like, yes. This is what we need. We need this great physical specimen of a man who will lead us in battle. But very quickly, Saul falls off. And then David is like the, the hometown, the good old little hometown boy that everybody loves to root for. And he comes out of nowhere just from, from um, watching his father's sheep. And like I already said, he takes down Goliath. And you're like, yes, this is this, but it's not it. 
And my point is this, is that, folks, we constantly do this. We constantly think that we need something else to satisfy us. If we can just have more power, if we can just have more money, if we can just be more popular, if we can just be skinnier or, or, or more muscular or, or look a little bit different, if we could just have this house or this car or if we could just live in this place or if I could just get this job or if I could just get this promotion. Again, the list could go on absolutely forever because our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly churning out things to try to worship that we believe will satisfy us, but the point is that nothing is going to satisfy us except Jesus. That's the point. And so this story, again, of of Matthew um, with this genealogy, he's causing us to look back. And if you would, if I can just press that same thing again, would you just take a second and right now, just even just praying that the Holy Spirit would do this in your life, like just take a second and just in a few seconds, look back over your life. And think about the things that have caused you pain. Think about the things that have left you empty. Is it not this same story? Where you thought that blank would satisfy you. You thought that fill in the blank would deliver you. But it left you empty. Matthew's saying this is This isn't just Israel's story. This is the story of all of us. And the answer for all of us is the same. It's Jesus. Because he came to save his people from their sins. Now there's some really other (coughs) cool literary things that Matthew's doing here. One of them, and this is probably the most, um, one of the most obvious ones, is that in our Bibles, the way the Old Testament is arranged is that the last book of our Old Testament is the book of Malachi, okay? However, the Hebrew Bible, so like the, the Old Testament that Matthew's readers would have had, okay? The Old Testament that Matthew's readers would have had, the last book of their Bible was the book of Chronicles. And you're like, well, first or second Chronicles, both. It was just first and second Chronicles, they were, they were part of their Bible, but it was just one book, and it was the last book of their Bible. It's just the book of Chronicles. Now, I want you to flip back to the book of Chronicles. Bible sword drill. Ready? Go. And here, here's what you should find, is you should find, and I want you to get a hold of First Chronicles chapter 1 and Second Chronicles chapter 36, and you should have a section about this thick. Okay? It's actually a decent little chunk when you put it in perspective. This was the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Guess what the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are? A genealogy. It's a long genealogy. And here's all I want you just to flip through real quick. Again, we're not going to spend a bunch of time in this. But First Chronicles chapter 1 is a genealogy from Adam to Abraham which is then there where Matthew picks it up. And again, the writer of Chronicles follows more nuance of the descendants of the 12 tribes, uh, even the ones that Jesus didn't come from. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Okay, And so Matthew kind of cuts, cuts through it all. But point that out, because again, Matthew's readers would have known what he is doing in that he's being very intentional 
on slapping his introduction right on to the very end of the Old Testament story. And again, the point is this, is that Jesus is the king. He's the one we've been looking for. But not only that, again, very another, I just, um, there's one other, like, the Bible is absolutely inspired. I, uh, there's something called higher criticism that theologians and different scholars engage in sometimes where, they, you know, they look at these different things in the Bible, and they're like, well, this little detail, I don't, doesn't match up with this over here, and it isn't true. And, and if I, my two cents on it, I'm not saying there's not a place for it, but my two cents on it is this, that is so stupid. <laughs> Maybe that was too strong, but it is. Um, is the Bible, like, I don't need to defend the Bible. The Bible is like the sun. You don't think it's powerful? Try to stare at it for five seconds. You'll go blind. The Bible is screaming with the glory of God and that he is sovereign over all of history, bringing it all to a glorious end, but also in the writing and inspiration of it by the various authors over several thousand years. Anyway, at the, at the end of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 36, Okay, what you have here, these, this, these last couple verses, is this era in Israel's history that Matthew mentions just briefly in passing, okay, again in verse 17 in Matthew chapter 1, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, okay, so you've got this deportation, this exile to Babylon, Again, very quickly, the reason the nation of, history, or of Israel was in bondage, they were taken off into exile in Babylon, was because they were just unbelievably disobedient. Even their kings, again and again and again. And so what you have in these last couple verses of Second Chronicles, look, just look at verses 22 and 23. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is now the king that had kind of taken over um, after Nebuchadnezzar and then Darius. Uh, you can read about some of this in the book of Daniel. And this is now the king that is over the exiled people that are still primarily sitting in Babylon, okay? And so we're in that last little section of verse 17 in Matthew. Darius is the king in the, at this point in their Babylonian exile. And it says, the word of the Lord by the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And here's what Cyrus, the king, during this exile said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people May the Lord his God be with him. And then here's what we, we miss in the English, but it's an important little detail, that last little phrase. It says, let him go up, but in Hebrew, it's an incomplete sentence. So I know, guys, I know we're doing a lot of work here, but just hang with me, because this is cool. This last little phrase of the book of Second Chronicles, which I know we're not super familiar with, Cyrus is making this declaration, and God has stirred his heart to go again and establish a temple in Jerusalem, some sort. And then it just ends with this incomplete sentence. Let him go up, dot, dot, dot. And the point is this. It's like, let him go up and build this. Who, but who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, to a degree, God raises up Nehemiah to build the wall. He raises up Ezra, which is the next book in our English Bibles, to go up and to build 
the temple in Jerusalem, but, but, here's the thing. It's never, the glory of Israel is never again fully established to the point where even here, as Matthew is writing this, he doesn't mention Nehemiah or Ezra. He just jumps from the deportation in Babylon to again 14 generations to the Christ. Why? Because even though they had somewhat come back into the land, they were back in Jerusalem, and yeah, they rebuilt the wall somewhat under Nehemiah, and they kind of rebuilt the temple, and at this point, King Herod had come in and kind of added to the temple a little bit, but they are still a hot mess. They're still in captivity. Even though they're back in the land, here's what I want you to get, they're back in the land now, they're in Jerusalem, but who are they, who are they in, in captivity to? They're now in captivity to the Romans. Why? Why did God allow that? Because they continued to disobey him. Because they continued to sin. And so here's what you have. You have a people who on one level are back at home in Jerusalem, and yet they are still waiting for the kingdom of God. And again, if you understand what I'm saying, I hope that I'm explaining this clearly, I, that's exactly our experience. Is it not? That on one level, even for us here today, who are on the backside of this new covenant and that Jesus came. We, we're at home, we know him, but is there not still a longing in our hearts for the kingdom of God to fully come and be present among us? Like as we sang earlier, king of heaven, come down. I, I still feel that in, 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 again, I, in prayer this morning, it's just like, that's what I was praying for beforehand. It's like there is still so much brokenness in this world. There's still so much sin. And this is our experience. That on one level we're home, even for us now, like we know Jesus, and yet we're waiting for him to fully deliver us. Does anybody in here still struggle with sin? Anyone? Our hope is in this better king who, yes, has sent his Holy Spirit, and yes, is in us, and is a seal, and we're sealed with him as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until he comes back. But man, how we long for him to come back, amen? Do we not? And I don't know, the, the point is, is just that this story that we find throughout the scriptures, again, wide-angle lens, the big thing, it's just from beginning to end, no matter what covenant or dispensation you find God working in, in the end, it's this, is that we know him and yet we long to be with him. Because the way that, yes, he delivers us from our sin, but the way that he delivers us from our sin is by truly being with us. By being with us. And this is what Matthew touches on. Again, in the birth narrative, back in Matthew 18, he says, his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And again, what does that mean? It means God is salvation. But then he's all, there's also another name. It says, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Jesus came, and he is Emmanuel. And again, if you follow me here, at the end of Second Chronicles, 
where Cyrus makes this declaration. Who, who's going to go up? Who's going to bring this better temple where God will dwell with his people? The answer is, it's Jesus. He's the better temple. In fact, in John's gospel, you see this theme throughout, is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. That Jesus became flesh, this is the essence of the incarnation, that he would save us from our sins by being with us. And by being with us in the deepest possible experience. Again, if you'll hang with me through some more stories, flip to the end of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. This king, this theme, this theme of not just a king, but a different type of king, the type of king that we need, the type of king that will deliver us from our sins, and how will he deliver us from our sins? He will be with us. But what about when we go to death? Because that's a common experience. In fact, it's the experience that, again, not to try to be like too dramatic or, or I, I don't know, um, poetic about it, but this is the thing that actually unites all of humanity is that we are all going to die. And so we need a king that will be with us in that common human experience. We need a king that will be with us in death. And you see Matthew just hammering this theme, not just in chapter one, but throughout his entire book, that Jesus is precisely this type of king. In several different places in the midst of the crucifixion, Matthew highlights this king idea, this royalty idea, but, but not in the way that you would expect. Not with everybody coming and bowing down, but rather with people mocking him in his death. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, he's been arrested and he's now standing before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. In other words, what he's saying there is, yeah, I am. Later on in Matthew chapter 27, verse 27, it says, then soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet, this was the, the, color, the color of royalty. They're doing it to mock him. Verse 29, twisting together a crown of thorns. Why a crown? Because a king wears a crown. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand as if it was his staff, as if it was a scepter, which is another thing that a king carried. It was a sign of authority. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. Later on in chapter 27, the same narrative. Verse 37, it says, Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, so here was the charge, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. But do you hear the mockery in it? And yet, it was true. Later on in verse 41, it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself, this king of Israel? Here's the point, is that Jesus is a king, he's a different type of king, he doesn't look victorious, but he is the most victorious, because he came and he was victorious over death, and he fully, in every sense of the word, experienced that death with us and for us. 
so that we would know that he truly is Emmanuel in every sense of the word. It does not matter what pain is represented in your life this morning. I'm telling you that Jesus understands. And he came and he did absolutely everything that he could so that he could look you in the eye and say, I know, I understand what it means to taste the bitterness of sin. And he took all of it upon him. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. But he took it all upon himself so that we would trust him. He didn't have to do this. But he did. So that we would trust him. And again, the, the, the sin, this, this story here, I, again, the, Matthew, he just piles on reason after reason after reason after reason as to why this is true. But again, go back to the genealogy at the beginning. Folks, it is, um, it's not a great family history. And again, Matthew goes out of his way to point this out. He does things that he would, he would, people would not normally do in writing a genealogy, in writing a family history. Verse 3 throws this in there. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you know that story? We're not going to look at it. It's literally like R-rated. I'll give you the cliff notes real quick. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. She pretends to be a prostitute and hooks up with Judah. Super bad. Okay? There was never a time when that was okay. It's part of the story. Verse 5, Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. Another one. Ruth, a Gentile. In fact, all these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba more than likely. All Gentiles. But they're part of the story. It's not just the ladies who have some scandalous background here. I mean, again, Judah played his role in that whole thing, and he was very guilty. I've already mentioned what David did. You go a little farther down, down the list, look at verse 10. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings, wicked men that has ever existed. He came to the place where he was so idolatrous that he sacrificed his own child to a false god. Absolute wickedness. Absolute darkness. Absolutely the epitome of all that sin and rebellion brings about in this life. And yet what is Matthew saying? Somehow, over it all, Jesus is Lord of it. And he came to clean up this mess. Is that good news to anybody this morning? Because I don't care what your mess is. I don't care how dark it is. I don't care what you're so embarrassed about that you don't want anybody to know. Here's the thing. Jesus knows, and he's not ashamed. He came to deal with this mess. This is his, this is his grace to us. Again, his sovereignty over all of history bringing these things about, 
and bringing about this way in which he can now be with his people and dwell with us. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. Uh, and we're going to take communion together. I think it's, it's good. I don't, I don't think it's good. I know it's good. I'm happy that we're doing it today. That it worked out for us to take communion together today. In light of this text. Is that Jesus came. And he put on the crown of thorns, which was a picture of the curse in the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden that the ground was now going to bear thorns and thistles for them rather than good fruit because of sin. He came and he put that on. He, he took on death for us. And the different type of king that he is it's exactly the type of king that we need. And his kingdom is one that doesn't make sense to the world. And everything that I've said this morning about Jesus coming and understanding, it's true. But folks, here is how you enter into his kingdom. It's through death. It's through identifying with him in all the shame that he took, that was not his, but he took it for us, in the same way we identify, we confess our own sin, but also the sin that he took for us. Jesus just said it like this, and you've heard me quote this a thousand times if you come to Mercy Hill. But he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is an invitation to die. And if you're here this morning, and I'm sure this is true of all of us to some degree, is that in various ways, in various different shapes and forms, different specifics, I guarantee that every one of us in our life today is experiencing death, is experiencing the effects of sin. And I'm telling you, the way that you enter into the kingdom of God again and again and again is by identifying with Jesus in his kingdom. A kingdom that doesn't look glorious to the world. A kingdom where you're not going to get a lot of applause. And oh hey, good job, good for you. Aren't you successful? The way you enter into the kingdom is by following the life of Jesus, which means many times looking like an absolute fool looking like you don't have it all together. It looks like being mocked, just like Jesus was. And while we talk a lot about all that he did for us, and man, what he did for us, that's, that's everything. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That he came and did all that for us. The way we enter into it is, yes, it's only by faith. But faith looks like dying. And I just want to try to land the plane here this morning as we close and as, and as we take communion. I do not want us this morning to come forward and take of the bread and the cup and just, <laughs> just take Folks, we can't do that. It's not that we ever, I'm not saying we did, but like, don't, don't do that this morning. 
Like if, if you're going to come, the invitation is open to anyone. Why? Because Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world. You know, some, some churches, they, you have to be like a member uh, uh, of the local church in order to come take communion. Listen, we don't, we don't own communion. <laughs> it's for everybody. But I want to be clear that if you're going to come this morning and you're going to take of it, what you're saying is, Jesus, I want to die with you. I want your life to be my life. I want to lay down my life, just like you laid down your life for me when you didn't have to. That you are worthy of everything that I have, and here it is. That you die to yourself, that you die to your desires, that you die to your frustrations, that you die to the unforgiveness, that you die to the bitterness, that you die to having to maybe understand the things that you just can't understand. That when you come this morning, you say, Jesus, I, I want to be crucified again with you. That you might have all of my life. Because again, it's, I know it's, it's backwards, it seems paradoxical, but those who lose their life are the ones that find it. Amen? They're the ones that find it. So stand with me as we stand and as we sing again. And as we come and we partake of the bread and the cup, I pray that we would be able to look backwards in awe and wonder at what you did for us and how you came to be a different type of king that would save us from our sin. It's just the type of king that we needed. And Lord, I also pray that we would be able to look forward to the time when you will come again and you will rule the nations with a rod of iron. You will not be mocked when you come again. You will not be mocked again. But Lord, I, I pray also, not just looking back and not just looking forward, but right now today, in these moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us and that you would help us again to truly be crucified with Christ. And that we could say with sincerity that it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life that we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for being such a good Savior. Thank you for being such a good King. We thank you that you're sovereign over all of humanity's dark history, including our own. We lay that down at your feet this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen.